have a Bible, would you please take it and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 as we continue our study in this letter to Paul. We said last week that Ephesians 2.10 marks a transition in this letter. We are moving here, in, as we go into verse 11, we're moving from Paul's description of, of how God has made us a, a new people through the gospel, and we're moving into how he has brought about a new unity through that gospel. We could say also that, that the new people that God has made us to be always results in the new unity that he's going to describe here in these verses that we start looking at in the second half of chapter 2. Unity. Well, what is the opposite of unity? You can't say disunity because you're using the word in it. What is the opposite of unity? Well, if we're not unified, then, then what are we? There's lots of ways I think we could we could answer that question. Maybe some have come into your mind, but primarily the way that our passage today invites us to think about the opposite of unity is in terms of distance. The opposite of unity is distance. Think about how we describe two opposing groups of people. We might say that they are on opposite sides of the spectrum, meaning they're, they're far apart. They're, they're divided and far away. Or maybe in your close relationships, there are times when you feel that others are being unusually aloof or detached. Sometimes Andrea and I, in the business of life, will say to each other, you feel distant, which is a, a sign that we need to make time to, to reconnect that we need to draw closer to one another because life has just caused us to drift a little bit. Of course, there's a distance in relationships that goes even further, isn't there? There's times when distance is not accidental. Sometimes we are excluded or we are ostracized from others. If you wanted to go to the Kentucky Derby yesterday, there were places that you could easily get to with a ticket. But then there were other places to which you and I would have been excluded from. Unless you were someone special or you're someone with a lot of money, you're in the infield. You're not on millionaire's row. You're ostracized. You're excluded. Ephesians shows us that in our sin, we are in fact doubly distant. In verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2, though Paul doesn't use the same words, he's made it clear that our sin separates us from God. We are dead, enslaved, and condemned, which means that, that we are excluded from a relationship with our Creator. But God in love and, and mercy and grace has sent Jesus so that we can be brought near to Him through repentance and faith. And the hope of heaven is ultimately the nearness of God that's been made possible by the sacrifice of Jesus. And now here in the second part of chapter 2, we see that we are not only distant from God, but we're distant from one another. We're distant from all of humanity, in fact. It, sin causes separation, and we find ourselves naturally excluded from God and also from his people. But the good news of the gospel tells us in verses 1 through 10 that God has brought us near through the work of Christ. And here, in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, we're told this, that the blood of Jesus draws us near to all of God's children. The blood of Jesus draws us near to all of God's children. We could say, we could summarize verses 1 through 10 as saying the blood of Jesus draws us near to God. And so then the, the second part here in, in verses 11 through 22 is that the blood of Jesus draws us near to all of God's children. 
Now, that may sound like a, a very simple big idea on its surface, but it, it actually strikes at the heart of the divisions that we are all too familiar with in our world and which we wish were not present even in our own hearts. The truth of this passage forces us to confront division. It forces us to confront racism and classism. It forces us to think about sexism and elitism. It breaks down the walls that we have become too comfortable with in our world and in our hearts, and it calls us to a supernatural unity that is rooted in the blood of Jesus. And it makes it clear that we cannot claim to draw near to God while putting up walls that separate us from fellow followers of Jesus Christ. We can't claim that we are coming near to God while we put up walls that separate us from fellow followers of Jesus because the blood of Jesus draws us near, not simply to God, but to all of God's children. If you think that's simple, I, I would say it's actually anything but simple because the issues that divide us are not simple. Would, would we imagine that the world, in all of its divisiveness, could be united by something uncomplicated? I think sometimes we think that way. We wish that were true. Rodney King, after he was beaten by the LA police, famously said, why can't we all just get along? The, the problem seems simple, right? We don't get along. <laughs> and so the, the solution, we would think, is simple. But it isn't, is it? No, it takes the intricate work of God in the gospel to make this supernatural unity possible. If we don't take time to contemplate what God has done to unite us, then our unity will be as weak and as flimsy as our understanding of what actually unites us. The reason the church can speak a word about true unity is not because we are simplistic, but because we understand the profound and the supernatural thing that God has done in Christ to bring about unity. We see how deep our division goes, and we see the deeper work of God that he has done in uniting us. And so to that end, we got to think a little deep. So today I want to invite you to think a little deep, because unless we understand the depths of what God has done to unify us, then we will never experience the depth of unity that he is actually calling us into. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 is a unified paragraph, but we're going to, in fact, take it in two parts. Uh, this week I want us to look at verses 11 through 18, and then next week there's three main illustrations in verses 19 through 22 that we'll sort of uh, hash out together. But let's read Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 18, and then think about these things together. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 11, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus, by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing 
the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. The blood of Jesus draws us near to all of God's children. Let's think about these verses in two main parts. Remember that you were far away and realize that you have been brought near. So first, verses 11 and 12, remember that you were far away. Remember that you were far away. Uh, this could, in fact, make feel a bit like a rehash of Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, where we're told our condition apart from God's grace. And, and I think Paul does that on purpose. Uh, however, the focus here is on the distance and the alienation that exists between us in our sinfulness and all of God's people, specifically the Jewish people. Now we might begin by asking, who is the you that Paul is referring to in verse 11? Therefore remember that at one time, you. But who's that you? I, if we were in the, the foyer later on and I said, hey you, I could be referring to anyone, couldn't I? But I'm probably just talking to one specific person. So in this verse, verses 11 and 12, who is Paul talking to? Easy question to answer. He says it right away. He says, you, Gentiles. Gentiles simply means anyone who is not ethnically Jewish. Anyone who is not a physical descendant of Abraham is a Gentile. Paul says of them that they are Gentiles in the flesh, emphasizing that this physical reality has historically had spiritual implications. However, before he, he gets to the spiritual reality of the situation, he hints at the social reality of the situation. Socially, relationally, he says... You were far away. We might miss this in verse 11. He says that the Gentiles were called what? They were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, meaning the Jewish people. The ESV helpfully puts the circumcision in quotes because Paul is referencing the pejorative, derogatory term that was used for the Gentiles. This is not simply some form of identification. This is an insult. There, there was hostility behind it. You might remember in 1 Samuel that after Goliath had issued his challenge to the Israelites, 1 Samuel 17, 26 says, And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David is not stating a fact about Goliath, that Goliath was uncircumcised. David is insulting him as someone who is not a part of the people of God. Many of the laws, especially the command of circumcision, were intended to create a separation between God's people and the nations. The, the, this desire for purity was good, however, it morphed, in fact, into a hatred of non-Jews. Let me read to you a long quote from William, William Barclay that describes this, this hatred. He says this, the Jews had an immense contempt for the Gentile. The Gentiles, said the Jews, were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. God, they said, loves only Israel of all the nations he has made. Until Christ came, the Gentiles were an object of contempt to the Jews. The barrier between them was absolute. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, or if a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, the funeral of that Jewish boy or girl was carried out. Such contact with the Gentile was the equivalent of death. 
existed in the temple then makes sense. You see, there was this, this wall, there was a, a screen of sorts around the inner parts of the, the temple to keep the Gentiles out. They were not allowed to go in to the temple area. Uh, it, and on that wall, there was, in fact, a, a warning that said that Gentile trespassers would not be prosecuted. They would be, they would be executed. They would be killed. Maybe you remember in the book of Acts that Paul was accused of bringing a Gentile past that wall into the temple. I don't know if you remember that, but the Jewish people got pretty upset at Paul about that. And suddenly we, we realize why. We understand why there was a lot of anger towards Paul in that moment. Now, we don't have to use our imagination much to understand this kind of contempt, because we see it. We see it in history, and we see it in the present. We might think of the, the contempt for the Jewish people, seen in Nazi Germany. We could even look at the racial division in our past and our present, in our own nation. We could even look into our own hearts if we're, if we're able to be honest with ourselves and see the seeds of that kind of contempt, even in us. All of this can help us understand the social situation between Jews and Gentiles. The social situation was one of hatred and contempt for one another. Verse 12 then helps us to see the spiritual realities of the Gentiles. And here, again, the language of distance is used. So as we remember that we were far away, we, we who are Gentiles in the flesh, we who are not ethnically Jewish, we can see the spiritual reality of our situation. Paul describes this spiritual reality of distance with, with five phrases. Okay? We'll go fast. Five phrases. Number one, they were separated from Christ. They were separated from Christ. Pause and think about that. Separated from Christ. Because if you think about it, then the weight of this is going to fall on us. Every blessing in Ephesians up to this point, where is it found? In Christ. It's found in Christ, but the Gentiles are separated from Christ. Christ is the, the Greek word for Messiah, and so the emphasis could be that they had no hope of a deliverer. Unlike the Jewish people, they, they weren't looking forward to or anticipating a Redeemer. They were separated from that hope. Second, they were alienated from Israel. They were alienated from Israel. Baal translates this as alienated from the citizenship of Israel. What it means is that they lack the rights and privileges of being a citizen of the nation of Israel, of, of being a part of God's national people. We know these terms. We know terms like illegal alien or resident alien. Some of you know what it means to be in a country but not be a citizen of that country, to not have the rights and the privileges of citizenship. And the, the Gentiles lacked the full rights that came with being a member of national Israel. Related to that, we see thirdly that they were strangers to the covenants of promise. You could write this outline. It's all just coming straight out of verse 12. They were strangers to the covenants of promise. The story of God's people can be traced through covenants, through promises made to God's people, from Adam to Noah to Abraham to David to the new covenant of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. We see this unfolding, beautiful plan of God's good promises to his people. And in those promises, the nations are often mentioned. There's an obvious focus on Israel in them, but God's goodness is also seen to be extending to all people. But here's the problem. The Gentiles don't know anything about these covenants. They, they were strangers to them. 
The Gentile was walking down the street and met the Abrahamic covenant or met the Davidic covenant on the street. They would have no idea what it was and they would assume that it had absolutely nothing to do with them. The Gentiles were separated, they were alienated, they were strangers, and all of this meant two more things. So the fourth spiritual reality is they were without hope. They were without hope. How could they have hope? They didn't know about the Messiah. They knew nothing about God's kingdom. They were oblivious to the covenants. And so they walked through life with no vision for who God is, or of his love, or of his justice, or of his coming kingdom, or of his glory. And that meant fifth and finally, they were without God. They were without God. All of this distance from God's people and the reality of their sinful nature meant that they had suppressed the knowledge of God and substituted him with false gods. The, the Ephesians weren't atheists in the sense that they denied the existence of a divine being. They were very active in their worship of Artemis. They were very active in their spiritual practices. But they didn't know the true God. This is who we all are in our natural state. They're born far from God and far from God's people. There's a division between Jew and, and Gentile, and we Gentiles, we are separated from Christ. We are alienated from God's kingdom. We are strangers to God's promises, and therefore we are without hope, and we are without God. Think of that in contrast to what Paul says about the Jewish people in Romans 9. This is what Paul says about the, the Jewish people in Romans 9, 4 through 5. They are Israelites, and to them, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. The Israelites, the Jewish people, grew up surrounded by a knowledge of God and aware of God's goodness and promises. But we Gentiles? Far from that. The spiritual reality of our distance from God and his people may also help us understand the roots of the social hostility that the Jews had towards the nations and that the nations had towards the Jews. Were the nations really just going to come in and be a part of all these things that were special for the Jewish people? There would be this, this conflict that existed there because this, this change that was happening was pretty seismic. When we pause and remember how far away we are from God, though, then the next command becomes all the more sweet because Paul tells us this in verses 13 through 18. Realize that you have been brought near. Realize that you have been brought near. Realize first that you're far, you've got to understand that we were far away. But once we realize that we are far away, now we can remember that we have been brought near. And again, the formulation is similar to 2, 1 to 10. There we saw our spiritual condition, and verse 4 introduces the grace of the gospel with those words, but God. And here, do you see this? After describing the social and the spiritual reality of our distance from the people of God, what do we read in verse 13? But now. But now. We are told, because we are in Christ, we've been brought near. We find in verse 13 that the foundation of the unity Paul is calling us to is that we are in Christ. And the answer as to how we are brought near is found in that phrase, by the blood of Christ. And remember, 
Remember, he's not talking primarily about us being brought near to God, though that is here. In fact, it's the blood of Jesus that has brought us near to everything that we were far away from. The blood of Jesus brings us near to Christ and places us in him. The blood of Jesus brings us near to the kingdom of God and makes us citizens of it. The blood of Jesus gives us a knowledge of the covenants and of our place in them. The blood of Jesus gives us hope. The blood of Jesus gives us God. And all of this means that the blood of Jesus has also brought us near to all of God's people who trust in Christ and his shed blood. Verse 14 clarifies this. It brings it into focus. Look at verse 14. For he, Jesus, he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Peace. Peace is a key word here. It also shows up in verses 15 and verse 17. And it is peace between those who were once hostile to one another. Those who called each other nasty names and didn't like each other at all. It's peace between Jew and Gentile. They hated each other, and now they are one. They mocked and derided each other, and now they're friends. Those who had a literal wall separating them are now unified because this wall of hostility is torn down through the work of Jesus. When Paul is writing this, the, the physical wall that kept Gentiles away from the temple was still in place. But for Jews and Gentiles in Christ, there was no more division, no more hostility. Now practically, of course there's still hostility. That, that's why Paul's writing this, because there is still hostility, there is still separation. But there is no longer any reason for that hostility. The moment that the veil of the temple was torn in two was the same moment that the wall of separation for the Gentiles came crumbling down. The boldness of what Paul is saying here and of what the gospel was asserting should start to dawn on us. In, in the midst of all of the division and all of the separation and all of the hatred in our world, and there's a lot of it, in the midst of all of that, God's Word makes it clear that reconciliation and peace are possible. But they can only ultimately come when we are found to be united in Christ. It's the only place that true unity can happen is in Christ. And Paul can make such a bold claim because of what he understood the work of Jesus to have done. And he starts to describe it. And this is where we get a little thick with the theology, but let's drill down into it. There's three verbs that will frame our thoughts around. John Slott was helpful to me pointing those out. Three verbs in verses 15 and 16. First he says, God has abolished. God has done something. God has abolished. What has he abolished? He has abolished the law. God has abolished the law. Now as I say that, you might say, but what about Matthew 5.17? What does Matthew 5.17 say? Do not think, Jesus says, that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So did Paul forget the words of Jesus when he wrote this? Let's come at this from two ways to answer that question. We could approach this question by remembering first that the, the law of Genesis through Deuteronomy had a, a moral and a ceremonial component. Laws against adultery and murder, laws about loving our neighbor are part of that moral law, but there are also laws about purification, laws about separation and circumcision, 
Laws about what makes a person clean or unclean. Laws about what you're allowed to eat and not eat. Laws about how Israel was to remain separate from the rest of the world. And it would seem to be these laws that Paul is referring to. That, that Christ has taken away the need for laws like circumcision or food laws because they only pointed to the need of inward purity and the need for the circumcision of our hearts. They were a shadow. And now that Christ has fulfilled all those shadows... In reality, through the gospel, these external laws are no longer necessary. There no longer needs to be division. There no longer needs to be separation. Let's come at it from a different angle. We could also say that Paul is saying here, that, that what Paul is saying here is actually the result of what Jesus says in Matthew. That they work together. How has God abolished the law? Because Christ fulfilled it. Christ has abolished the law by fulfilling it. He has fulfilled all of the moral and ceremonial laws through his perfect life, through his atoning death. And because Jesus has fulfilled the law, keeping the law is no longer the way of salvation. Jesus is the way of salvation. And now the law, the, the moral law, is what we do out of love and commitment to Jesus, and the law being the ceremonial laws that brought about separation. That's no longer the we can talk more about that later. But God brings us near, we see, by abolishing the law and ordinances. But God in Christ has not only abolished something. Some of us are really good at the demolition part of all the things. You know how to do that really well. I'm probably in that group. But we're not so good at the reassembling part, <laughs> the building part. But not so with Jesus. Jesus is the great carpenter, the master builder. Because we see in verse 14 that God only abolishes, but what does he do? God creates. Verse 15, that he might create. And what has God created? He's created a new humanity. <laughs> He's created a new man. What an amazing thing. The law we have seen caused division between Jew and Gentile. And we've also, as human beings, found countless other reasons to divide ourselves. But now that we are in Christ, God has taken the divisions the law created and the divisions that we sinfully create, and he has made a new humanity that is united in Christ. What the gospel has accomplished is revolution, is revolutionary. It's so revolutionary that no sinful cause for division can stand against it. No reason you can come up with to divide from someone who is in Christ will stand. Paul says in Galatians that the cross of Christ deals with the divide between Jew and Gentile. But he also goes on to create, to, that Jesus goes on to create a, a unity that goes across all lines of division. This is what Paul says in Galatians 3, 26-29. For in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So what does that mean? There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Revolutionary. What has God done through Christ? He's made us all children of Abraham, children of promise through faith. Which is why in Revelation we see gathered around the throne all of God's children, 
no divisions, no tears, no people who are especially closer, and no people who are especially farther away, but all people, this new humanity created by him through the sacrifice of Christ and his people from every tribe, and every tongue, and every people, and every nation, and they're all gathered around the throne together. Once there were two people, there were Jews and Gentiles. Once there were two people, there was us and there was them. Once there were two people, there was God's people and there was everyone else. But in Christ, we are one. God has abolished. God has created. And then in verse 16, God has reconciled. God has reconciled. Who has God reconciled? We've been talking about the fact that God has reconciled Jew and Gentile, but here Paul says that God has reconciled us to God. You see that? Verse 16, and by reconciled us both, Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross. God has reconciled us to God. Follow the logic of these verses, this verse, okay? If you have your Bible open, just keep your eyes on verse 16. God, Jesus has reconciled us to God in one body. I think Paul here is, if I'm not mistaken, the first, for the first time he, in this letter, he's introducing the idea of the body of Christ, where Christ is the head, and we all, in the midst of our diversity, are joined together in him in this body. He has reconciled us to God in one body. How? Through the cross. Before he said it with the blood of Christ, same thing here, but he just says it's the cross of Christ. Jesus reconciles us to God. He makes peace between us and God. How? Through the cross. Whereas we had been enemies of God in our sin, Jesus takes our sin upon himself, dies in our place, and thereby, Paul says, verse 16, kills the hostility. He kills the hostility. When Jesus is killed, he kills hostility. The hostility that God had towards us. When Jesus dies, so does God's anger towards his rebellious children who will repent of their sin and trust in Christ. And in killing the hostility between us and God, by bringing us into Christ through his cross, what has he also done? He's killed any hostility that we would have towards one another. He's killed all of the hostility that we might have towards someone else who is a part of the body of Christ. We said the second point is to realize that you have been brought near. So who's the you here? We said the you previously was the Gentiles. Who's the you here? Verses 17 and 18 show us that the you here refers to Jews and Gentiles alike. Look how Paul writes it, verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you, who were far away, who's that? It's the Gentiles. Then peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. It's, it's the Jews. What Christ has accomplished on the cross, he proclaimed, and he proclaimed in his resurrection, and he proclaims through his messengers from the disciples to this present day, and it's a message of peace with God to all people, Jew and Gentile alike. Whether we were born near through being ethnically Jewish, or whether we were born far away because we were not ethnically Jewish, the only way that we can be brought into fellowship with God is how? It's through Christ. It's through faith in the gospel. And once we're in, we're all equal. We're all equal heirs together. 
Do you see that in verse 18? For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Every single person who is in Christ has the exact same thing. Access through the Spirit to the Father. We're invited into the fellowship of the Trinity. We come to the Father through the Son by the Spirit. We're brought near to God. And therefore, as we are brought near to God, we're brought near to everyone else who has been brought near to God, brought near to each other. Again, our unity with one another is rooted in the fact that we are in Christ. And our identity as those who are in Christ is deeper than any other identity that we might claim. And this identity is so central, it's so powerful, that nothing else about us can truly separate us if we are in Christ. If we wanted to, we could come up with a lot of reasons to divide from one another. Ken's a Steelers fan. I'm a Cleveland Browns fan. <laughs> but we're brothers in Christ. And our sports affiliation, it will never divide us. It will never divide us. Two of our elders hate coffee. And I love it. And we love each other. <laughs> we go deeper than these things, don't we? We have various ethnicities that are represented in our church. But that's not who we ultimately are. Ultimately, we are one in Christ. There are people here who voted for our current president, and there are people who vehemently oppose our current president. And we are united in Christ. There are men and women in this church we are co-heirs with Christ. There are children and there are elderly in this church. We are of equal worth to our Heavenly Father. We could go on and on, couldn't we? Come up with every possible reason to divide. And you can't divide over it if you're both in Christ. None of these things can separate us. And none of these things should more powerfully unite us. I think that's the danger of the church right now, is that we are being united around things that are lesser than Christ. That we're finding our, our deepest unity with people, not because they're in Christ, but for some other reason. If we find our unity with the people, with people who are of the same ethnicity, or the same political party, or the same age group, or dare I say it on Mother's Day, the same nuclear family, if that's the basis of our unity, anything else is the basis of our unity, or, our, or the place where we find our deepest sense of unity, then we're missing something. We're missing out on the supernatural unity that Christ has purchased by his blood, because it goes beyond all of those things. It goes deeper than all of those things. God forbid that we would keep someone even from our fellowship, or that we would look down on them because of color of their skin, or because of their gender, because of their social status, or because of anything else. You can't exclude people who are in Christ because of those things. Brothers and sisters, this is, this is powerful stuff. The blood of Jesus draws us near to everyone who is God's child through faith in Christ. Unity and reconciliation and the destruction of prejudice and whatever else you want to call it, these are blood of Jesus issues, is what Paul's telling us. This is an issue that, that Jesus has purchased by his blood. The unity that the world longs for and that the church is called to 
is a cross of Christ reality. The church, the church is the only place that true unity can happen. So the question becomes, are we showing the world for God's glory and for our joy this truth? The truth that if we are in Christ, then nothing can separate us from God. Because the blood of Jesus draws us near not only to God, but it draws us near to all of God's children who are his children through faith in Christ. I want to invite you to reflect on God's word. Let's just take a moment of silence, allow the Spirit to maybe apply this in different ways to us. And then after a brief moment of silence, I'll close this in prayer. thing you have done in the sending of Jesus. But you not only have taken me who were dead and enslaved and condemned and made us alive together with Christ. Seated us in the heavenly places with Christ. Saved us by your grace. But also would you have taken me who were far off and brought us near to one another. But that if we are in Christ, there's nothing that can divide us from one another. Pray, Lord, that you would teach us what this looks like, that you would help us to understand what the gospel has accomplished, what the blood of Jesus has purchased for us, even in this unity that you're calling us to. But I pray that as we continue to meditate on this chapter and see more of this truth next week that you would help us to, to know how we as the body of Christ can be representatives of this radical unity that you call us to, how we can show the, the, the love of Christ and the power of the gospel breaks down every wall of hostility. That's this all in Jesus' name. Amen.